Question number 88 of the Shorter Catechism, the outward and ordinary means of grace are the ordinances, especially word, sacrament, and prayer. So today we're focusing on the word. Uh, and last week I asked the question, or I, I teed it up by saying, if our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, then my argument is, is that part of enjoying God as God has revealed Himself in His Word, is enjoying His Word. Uh, again, last week uh, I referred to uh, an R.C. Sproul quote in which he said, basically our problem with the Word of God is all Christians are lazy. And not he didn't say it exactly like that, but, but I think that the problem with that argument is, is that if, if I come to you and I say, hey, you need to get with it, you are just a, a lazy bum, how much does that incentivize you? It really doesn't. It doesn't make you want to dig into God's Word. But if I say, I want you to know that God has revealed Himself in writing. I kid you not. And He has delivered to you a full canon of Scripture. You don't have to guess what God might say. He has literally said it to you, to His church, and you can know it. And you can read it. You can immerse yourself in it and you know exactly what God has said. Well, that sounds pretty good. In fact, that sounds enjoyable. And so that's my argument. And we looked at last week, uh, according to Psalm 119, ways in which we enjoy God's Word. And then uh, last week I concluded our lecture on how not to study the Bible. And I did that because I think sometimes we need to understand how not to do something so that we know how to do something. And some of the areas that we're prone to, uh, we are to avoid eisegesis. Uh, does anybody recall what the word eisegesis means? That's right, reading into uh, the Scripture instead of exegesis, which is drawing out from the Scripture. We are to avoid reading literalistically. That doesn't note that's different from the word literally. Literalistically is approaching Scripture and, well, th there it is. It, it says that David was surrounded by lions. And so those were lions because, doggone it, Scripture says, well... Yeah, but Scripture also has genres of literature, and so we need to understand within poetry there is figuratism used, and so we need to avoid reading literalistically, and we are to avoid one-verse promises, fixes, and other misapplications. Uh, we don't go to the Proverbs, for example, and go, there, it said it. It says that gray hair is, is wisdom. You know, well, I mean, I, a lot of the gray hair in here are wise, but I know, I know rooms full of people that we could fill with gray-haired people that don't have a lick of wisdom, right? And so a proverb is a truism, not a promise or a one-word fix or a whatever the case is. And then finally, we want to make sure we don't miss the broader redemptive context. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go over this today. I'm going to go over this the next Sunday. I'm going to go over this the next Sunday. So you're going to want to, to be looking and reminding yourself of this. Yes?
Yeah. Yeah, I think first of all, part of studying Scripture is discipline. So part, part of reading it is knowing how not to read it. So you've got to, when, so for example, this is the favorite of evangelical Bible studies. Well, I, I, I know, and I'm not saying this is what you're saying, but you hear this often. Um, I know that that's what you say that verse means, but that verse means to me, because God has really spoken to me in that verse. And so part of that is, hey, don't ever say that. Secondly, is discipline yourself to say, I may be tempted. That's my temptation because I think most of, I mean, we're a room full of folks that have been raised in, I've been raised, I can speak for myself in my 50s now, I, I only know the American evangelical era. So there's a lot of things for me as a student of the Bible where I have to discipline myself to not read Scripture that way, to not go and say, well, that's, that's just my promise verse. God, my favorite, God gave that verse to me. You know, well, I, God gave all of His Scripture to us, but if you're misinterpreting it, God didn't give that to you. In fact, you know who gave it to you? The devil. Yeah, misinterpreted Scripture is the tool of the devil, and he just reigns in it. He camps out in misinterpreted Scripture. And so we've got to be careful. So I think, number one, it's discipline. And over the next three weeks, I'm going to show you how to discipline yourself in your reading of Scripture. I think, secondly, there are times where we can take Scripture. So our Scottish Presbyterian forefathers were famous in this. You can use Scripture as an analogy, not by saying that's what that text means, but by using it. So for, I'll give you a prime example. Um, if, if I am to, to go to one of my children and say, um, you know what, you're in a difficult time and you're facing a, a, a strong, difficult situation, but you know what? Scripture's full of examples of facing difficult times. And I, I think of David facing Goliath, and I think of, of, of Daniel and the lion's den. And I think, so what I'm doing there is I'm, I'm not uh, saying Daniel and the lion's den of, is the interpretation for whatever my child is going through, but I can use it by way of analogy. As long as I'm crystal clear that I don't say, now this is the interpretation of Scripture. So we can use that. And we see that all the time. We see that in our New Testament. The New Testament will use the Old Testament by way of analogy and drawing from that. For example, when uh, it says, uh, when Paul is quoting the Old Testament and he's talking about, you know, making sure that you that that, that the, uh, the 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 uh, treading uh, cow, I think it is, isn't it? The treading beast uh, can also eat the grain that it's it's treading. Well, in its context, what did that have? What did that proverb have to do with? It had to do with going ahead and letting the animal do what it wants to do while it's treading out the grain, it can reach down and it can feed itself, so it's doing work and feeding itself at the same time. However, by way of analogy, how does the Apostle Paul use it? Yeah, pay your pastors. Yeah, because he's, he's there, he's working, he's doing the work, and so let him be blessed from the work that he's doing, so pay your, your pastors. So it, it, we're, we're not saying that that is the direct and most obvious and literal translation, 
of that, but the Apostle Paul does use it by way of analogy, and we can use Scripture by way of analogy as long as we're interpreting it right. And the example of that is, is that Paul, in using that analogy, is interpreting it right. He's not taking it out of context. He's not making it say something that it didn't say. He's not reading into it. He's not saying, you know, and, and, and you're just in there working for your salvation and Jesus is down there and you're just eating that grain like you're eating Jesus. He doesn't say something stupid like that. And that would be eisegesis. That would be reading something that's never going to be there into it. But analogy is fine and, and we're going we're gonna to go into that. In fact, you have to be able to use analogy to be able to really understand the Proverbs, for example. You've got to really be able to understand it to, to study Ecclesiastes that I'm preaching through. Uh, so those are just a couple of things. So be disciplined, rigorously disciplined, over and over disciplined, and feel free to use it by way of analogy. Does that answer your question somewhat? Yeah? Okay. Maybe not? Okay. All right. Well, maybe what I'm getting ready to go over over the next three weeks is going is to help. So let's start here. Uh, to enjoy God's Word involves handling it rightly. And many of you know the verse that I'm quoting from. The Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, uh, in 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best, that is, strive hard, work hard at it, to present yourself to God. That is, this is how you are, are, are acknowledging God, you're worshiping God, you're serving God, so forth and so on. He's doing it literally, in Timothy's case, as a worker, because he's a, a pastor, a teacher, who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling, or the King James translates that dividing, but the idea is, is that as you're handling the Word of God, of God, you are to do it rightly. The idea of, of that is, is that there's a right way to handle the Scriptures, there's a wrong way to handle the Scriptures, and so our desire is to handle it rightly. We are to enjoy God's Word, but we also need to understand that part of enjoying is work. And maybe this is somewhat lost on, on, our, on our modern culture, but most of us know this. If, if you want to enjoy something to an advanced level, whatever the, the case is, if, for example, to play a, an instrument, if you want to enjoy playing an instrument, you have to work at it, right? And just about anything that we really want to enjoy at a deeper level requires work, but also God's Word involves handling it rightly. And I love uh, the way that Eugene Peterson uh, says this. He says, It is not sufficient to place a Bible in a person's hands with the command, Read it. That is quite as foolish as putting a set of car keys in an adolescent's hands, giving him a Honda and saying, drive it, and just as dangerous. Uh, well, I think Peterson's right. It's, 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 it, we are to read the Word, but you just say to read it to someone who doesn't know what to avoid or someone who doesn't know how to read it is remarkably dangerous. And I think that's part of the evangelical catastrophe that we live in today is that oftentimes, more often than not, you're going to hear, whether it's in social media or whether it's in, in uh, 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 Christian friends within the community, whatever, more often than not, you're going to hear Bible verses misquoted, misapplied, misinterpreted than you are rightly, and that's just the day and age in which we live. 
We have to also acknowledge what the Apostle Paul wrote in the 12th chapter of Romans. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Um, But a number of books that have been written over the last 40 years uh, that deal with the Christian mind. And nothing has changed since those books began to show up on the, on the market, but the general argument is, is that we live in an anti-intellectual era. Many of the things, and I know some of you uh, will, will, will follow this just in terms of social commentary, but if you are, are someone who, who reads beyond news headlines and you actually dig down and try to study and read things of greater depth, you know that one of the problems that we're dealing with in education, for example, is that we have gone in every one that is of an age that would be from preschool to terminal degrees, like a PhD, that era has grown up in a country that has a very low view of intellectual discipline, has a very low view of the benefit and blessing of learning and applying the mind. And and even at higher levels, there will be pastors today, I'm, I'm sad to say, who will make fun of churches like us because we're too intellectual. Well, that's not what Christians were saying a hundred years ago. But we have become so dumb as a people that now whenever someone does take an approach to teaching the mind, well, it sounds, well, it's too academic, it's too intellectual. When I was uh, first ordained, my mentor said, you need to preach to the fifth grade level because that's about where the average church attender is. Well, I didn't, and I don't, and you know that. And you even kid me occasionally about it, and that's okay. I like those jokes, but I'm not going to preach to a fifth grader because you're not fifth graders. I'm going to preach to people who want to enjoy God's Word, who love God's Word, who love the Lord, and who want to exercise their minds. And so that's part of what we're emphasizing in this. Well, With that being the case, what I want to do is I want to look at the Westminster Confession because I've been reading it and I've been pointing to it as we've done this study on the doctrine of Scripture. And today what I want is I want to show you that our confession, so if you've got a, I don't know if you guys have a copy. Did I print out maybe just, no I didn't. Um, These are decorations. If anyone would like, would anybody like a copy of the Confession? Okay. When I say, would anybody like a copy of the Confession, everybody raise your hand to humor me. Okay, just kidding. Like both hands, can't wait to get one. Uh, oh, oh, share with him. Okay. All right. One, one, one more. Who, who wants it? Okay. All right, Matthew is the winner. All right, so I'm going to direct your attention. If you're taking notes, I am looking at Westminster Confession, point one, verse six. I mean, to verse six, chapter one, point six. Now, before you read it, and I'm going to read it aloud, we'll follow along. But before I read it, and if you're not following along, just listen closely. But I want you to listen to this in the context of studying, reading the Bible. So listen to it in in that, in that vein. 
the whole counsel, let's see, okay. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. Pause there for just a second. What does good and necessary consequence deduced from Scripture mean? What it means is, is that you're going to be reading the Word of God and there are some things that are just straightforward. Um, John 3.16, straightforward. Unless you've got questions about what eternal or everlasting life means. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. But there are some parts of Scripture where you have to engage the mind and deduce. Deduction. Not induction. We're not reading it into it. But deduction. You read the Word of God and you go, Aha! I see how that applies. I understand the general principle, the general idea of what that's saying. So they say that it is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to general rules of the Word which are always to be observed." Now, the last part of that is, is dealing with what we might call general or natural revelation. There are just some things that just common sense applies, and, and so we're able to deduce that, especially within a social life. But the first part of that is the main thing I want you to note in terms of reading Scripture. Secondly, go to point seven, which says, "...all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves." nor alike clear unto all. Yet, those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due season of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them." I realize that gets trapped in 17th century language, but the general idea, that's good news for all of us. You don't have to have a doctorate to be able to read Scripture, understand Scripture, especially on the most important things that matter to our eternal life. Those are clear. You can do it, and by the means, that is, is that the more you read, the better you get. The more you study, the better you get. Funny how that works, right? That's the way God's designed it. You're going to be a better reader of Scripture ten years from now if you're consistently reading the Word than you are today. That's what it's saying. Yes? That, that is actually a reference against. Um, that, that is saying, yeah, because it also the traditions of men is a, a slight toward the Roman Catholic Church. What it's saying there, if someone comes along and they say, hey, I have a new revelation from God, what they're saying is, is that's not included in Scripture. Yeah, good question. I incidentally, 
I don't think this applies to anybody in here, but that's the thing that I always have found humorous in Reformed churches that say they subscribe to the Westminster Standards and then want to exercise charismatic gifts. Uh, I, I just don't get it. There's so many references in the standards that are just like that. But anyway, all right. So point seven, then point nine. I'm almost done reading to you. Point nine says... And this is really short. You've heard me say this. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. What, what are they saying there? Scripture interprets Scripture. You've heard that Reformation doctrine uh, many times. And so the, the general idea uh, of that is, is that we should go to Scripture. And, and this is an important point because I know many of us carry study Bibles. And I've said before, and I'll say it again, I'm a big fan of study Bibles. If you don't have one, I've got a couple of recommendations that I can direct you to. I've got a whole list of ones that I would avoid you tell you to avoid. Um, but I've got a, a, a list. I think they're wonderful. But oftentimes, when reading Scripture, people will say to me, I end up reading the notes more than the Word. And so in my daily reading, I don't use a study Bible. Just use the Word. And then if I've got things I want to dig into, well, then the first place I should go is the, st- uh, the Scripture. Right? First to go to the Scripture. That's one of the areas, actually, that I judge my commentaries on. Uh, I have a selection, and when I preach on a book, I'll have a minimum of five commentaries at my hand, but I'll have some others that as I work through, I'll put on the shelf to either keep or give away to the public library. When I have a commentary that's directing me more and more to the philosophies of men and not to other relevant Bible passages, that's a red flag for me. And we are to go to God's Word to interpret God's Word. All right, so there's a couple of high points uh, that I want to draw to your attention here. Based on Westminster Confession, chapter 1.6, and 9. Number one, and these should be on your handout, we are to look to Scripture. We are to look to Scripture to know God. We are to look to Scripture to know God. So if you say, I want to know God better and better, I want to know Him more, I want to have a deep and intimate relationship with my Creator and Redeemer, you go to God's Word. That's where you go. Secondly, don't miss the essentials. Don't miss the essentials. Number three, we need to understand that it's the Holy Spirit who illuminates. It is the Holy Spirit who illuminates. And this is important because we're going to emphasize the importance of being in the Word, over and over in the Word, studying the Word, but it is an emphasis of dependence. Big distinction. We're not trying to create in Christianity a church full of academics. We are, in fact, trying to encourage people to love the Lord through the revelated means that He has provided, the Word of God. And that requires dependence. We are dependent upon the Holy Spirit. 
one of the beautiful things that, that I, I love in my, my daily devotion time is I have each morning a prayer. I have a, a number of different things that I go through. I'm currently using, if, if, if any of you have this, it's, it's uh, Johnny Gibson, who's a North, Northern Irish uh, prophet, Westminster, Philadelphia. But he uh, published a book this last year called Be Thou My Vision, and it's a devotional guide that you sort of walk through a liturgy that's very common to our Sunday morning liturgy, and then you read the scriptures, and, and I use my own scripture reading plan uh, because he uses the McShane plan, which is a little lengthier. But in, uh, in that... Every day there'll be a different prayer of illumination. And I love that because it reminds me, I'm getting ready to read the Old Testament. I'm getting ready to read the New Testament. I'm getting ready to read the Psalms. Oh, Holy Spirit, reveal your word to me. I need you. I am dependent upon you. And it's just a, a great uh, reminder to me. I do the same thing on my sermon prep days, uh, praying that the Holy Spirit will illuminate the word. Number four, we are to develop diligence. We are to develop diligence. And this is part of that discipline and and hard work. We live in a culture that thinks everybody is born a certain way. So LeBron James plays basketball because he was just born that way. Or John uh, is a pastor and preaches that way. He was just born that way. And we've gotten to the point where our athletics and our arts and our entertainment, and now I've seen it in the business world, where everything is dismissed except birth. Well, guess what? Most of the really good athletes I know work harder than we do. Most of the intellectuals that I know work harder than we do. Most of the really successful people in business that I know, and I've seen it firsthand, work harder than we do. There is a diligence to being in God's Word. And if you're only in God's Word every single Sunday, and you're missing it through the week, and you go, man, I just wish I could learn God's Word more. Well, I mean, you know, that's the equivalent of the person that goes to the all-you-can-eat buffet, never exercises, and goes, I just wish I could lose a little weight. Well, it ain't going to happen that way. You're going to have to actually be diligent, right? Well, that's God's Word. We've got to be diligent in God's Word, and that means that we develop it. You weren't born with it. you got to earn it. Number five, I don't know if you guys have heard this before, but avoid eisegesis. Avoid eisegesis. Just a little redundancy there. But actually, did you see it's in the confession? They caution against reading into Scripture. And then finally, you want to look for the basic meaning. Look for the basic meaning. If you are not an advanced Bible student, or maybe even if you are, uh, you really need to, when you're going to a passage, you need to focus on the basics. In, in my own life, in terms of sermon prep, what I have to avoid, this is something I have to develop diligence in, I have to avoid immediately going to the minutiae. Because it's very easy in a pastoral study with all sorts of resources at your fingertips and everything, and you look up and it's been four hours, and you go, wow. I just went down that rabbit hole. 
on that one verse and I miss the basic meaning of the whole passage. Start basic. Look at the basic redemptive message in the Scriptures that you're reading. All right, so with the time we have remaining, what we're going to do uh, over, uh, Lord willing, what we're going to do over the next three weeks, uh, we are going to look at how to read God's Word. And I know many of you thought that's what we were studying today, but had to get that Westminster Confession uh, little nugget in there. And uh, if you don't listen to anything that I say over the next three weeks, well then go back to the Westminster Confession. Chapter 1, 6, chapter 1, 7, chapter 1, 9, and reread that. But what I want to do today is, with the few minutes that we have left, is I want to start with point one on how to read the Bible. And then we're going to develop these out. In fact, on your uh, handout, I've gone ahead and listed for you uh, the other points we're going to be looking at. Uh, we're going to be looking at context. We're going to be looking at the centrality of Jesus. We're going to be looking at the story of Scripture, the biblical logic, and the literary character. All of these points we're going to look at. But today, with the minutes that we have remaining, I want to look at something that many of you have heard me say, I would imagine, countless times. The best way to avoid misreading and misinterpreting Scripture is to look at the context. And so the best way to think of this is to move from small to big. Let me explain what I mean. So you're reading, we'll pick on an easy example, um, you're, you're reading um, John 3.16. And uh, you're there and, and you get stuck on uh, God so loved. And, and, and so you're, you're on that word loved, and you, you begin to think about it. Well, then move out to the sentence. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So now I'm looking at that sentence. But don't stop there. Now let's look at the paragraph. The translators have organized the translation into paragraphs. Let's look at the paragraph. Well, now, when you read, this is, this is oftentimes when I, I recommend that, I have people come back to me and go, you know, I had completely forgotten the context of John 3.16. What's the context of John 3.16? Nicodemus by night. Nicodemus is, is seeking. He's searching. He's trying to understand who this man Jesus is. And, 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 and there's debate in that third chapter of parts whether the Apostle John is speaking or whether Jesus is speaking. And your translators will make a decision uh, based on how they think the flow of it is. But you're going to look at that and you're going to better understand the word love because of the verse 16, because of the paragraph of 16, but don't stop there. Then go to the chapter, the third chapter of John. The third chapter of John, and I know you're saying, now John, you've said that Scripture was not originally organized into chapter and verse. You're right, it wasn't. But most of the time, the way that they have been organized, they're helpful. And it also helps our minds, okay? Word, sentence paragraph, chapter. I got it. Do I stop there? No. Then I want you to go the whole book. What is the general theme of the Gospel of John? Did you know when you get done reading the Gospel of John, especially if you read it a number of times, you go, wow, there's a theme 
to that book, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. You've got to read it yourself. But it's helpful to know he does disclose it in the last chapter. And then you're going to go from the book, and then you're going to go, I need to understand this. Who is the writer? Oh, it's, it's the Gospel of John, because God worked, the Holy Spirit worked, carrying along the prophets, the prophetic word, carrying along John. God chose to use John. John is a certain personality, and John writes differently than Paul. John writes differently than the other Gospels, the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John writes differently. John writes differently in Revelation than he does in the Gospel of John, so forth and so on. And then finally, we're going to look at the provenance. And that's a, the provenance is a fancy literary word that just means the context in which he wrote it. And that's going to especially be important where books will have a certain timing to them. For example, the, the provenance of Revelation uh, would, would be specifically important. So, Context, word, sentence, paragraph, chapter, book, author, provenance. Secondly, context helps us with contradiction. Context helps us with contradiction. And let me look at the time to see if I've got enough time to go into this. Aha, I do. All right, if you have your Bibles, I want you to open them in two places. I want you to open to Romans 3.28, and then I want you to hold it there, and I want you to open it to James 2.24. So, Romans 3.28, James 2.24. When you get to these, you're going to know where I'm going, right? All right. For those of you that desire to to be there and to read, uh, hopefully you're there by now. Let me start with Romans 3.28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Couldn't be any clearer, could it? We know that we're justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So what we believe is Protestants, right? Boom, it's there. All right, now turn over to James chapter 2, verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What? Those two verses contradict one another. Yeah, right. Yeah, which which Luther called it. That's right. Or do they? Do they contradict one another? Well, if you're a one-verse captain, you know what that is, right? person that just pulls out verses, proof text, proof text, proof text, proof text, and they want to pit it against it. Well, you know, my favorite thing to do to people want to proof text me to death, I go, hey, let's, let's look at the Bible. Let's, let's, let's go see what, what James was talking about there in the whole chapter of 2, the whole chapter of Romans 3. Because, and we don't have time to read the whole chapters, of course, this morning, but if we were to go and start at Romans chapter 3, verse 28, what we see is that Paul is dealing with the way the third chapter started, because you read it in context, right? He's dealing with legalism. 
He's dealing with the Jews and their legalistic tendency, and he's pointing them that you're not saved by these works. You're saved by the same faith of Abraham. And then he gets to chapter 4 and he just takes on and and says, I'm just going to carry Abraham on out because he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness, so forth and so on. His general argument in Romans 3 is, salvation is by faith alone, not works. So then we go to James chapter 2, verse 24, and we say, man, it sounds like that verse contradicts. But when we read the whole chapter of chapter 2, what we find is that James is not dealing with legalism. He's dealing with the opposite, what we call antinomianism or lawlessness. He's dealing with what happens when you think that you can, well, I said a prayer, I walked an aisle, and now I can live like the devil and go to heaven. That's what James is dealing with there. And so what James is saying, the general point of his argument in context is, salvation by faith is never alone. And so what we can do here is we can say, there's no contradiction. They actually are kissing cousins, right? Romans 3.28, we are justified by faith in Christ alone, not by works. James 2.24, but that faith that we have for which we are justified, it's never alone. It shows up with works of righteousness. And so we see there is no contradiction, but if you did not read those verses in context, you would still be of the opinion they contradict one another. Yeah, Susan. Yeah. Yeah. Undoubtedly, but since I'm not teaching on Romans 3, I'm just teaching on trying to show how those two verses don't contradict one another. That's really why I'm sort of emphasizing that issue, that that Protestant doctrine of justification. But that's true. That's true. Um, All right, we're going to have to stop there. What I want to leave you with is... No, I'm able to finish. Give me two minutes. Secondly, context determines meaning. Context determines meaning. Let me give you a great great example. Who knows, this might come in handy today in the sermon. Sometimes what we will do is we will say there's a Bible word like flesh. And we'll say, okay, I went to my concordance, I looked at my Bible dictionary, this is what it says, and so that's my, my definition, Because, and I'm just going to carry it through. Flesh is flesh is flesh is flesh. Well, there's a big problem with that. If you go to John chapter 1, verse 14, it refers to Jesus being born in the flesh, and if you think that flesh is the sin nature, that means Jesus was a sinner, which He was not. So in John 1.14 and also Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, flesh means same word, sarke, same Greek word, but you got to read it in context. But if you go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, where you got the same word 
in the same paragraph, that's where you good students of the Bible will go, okay, in verse 13, he's talking about the sinful flesh, our sin nature, the dominion of sin reigning over us. But when I get to verse 15, I now see that he's talking about my body, my mortality, but you only know that by reading. And so we need to avoid defining words outside of the Bible. We need to define words in their context. And so then context helps us with application, and we'll talk about this in much greater detail in the coming weeks. Let me pray for us. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We desire to read Your Word, to study Your Word, to enjoy Your Word. And so we pray Make us good students of Your Word. Help us to read Your Word. Help us to be faithful, to be in Your Word. Help us to develop the diligence that it requires to rightly handle Your Word of truth. We ask now that You would bless us as we assemble across the street to worship You in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, Amen.